Hello and welcome to an exciting new episode of Batman Nightcast, a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network that chronicles the greatest comic book adventures of the Cape Crusader. I'm Chris Franklin. And I'm Ryan Daly. And today we're discussing the first two Batman tales created by arguably the most famous creative team to work on the character, this side of Bob Kane and Bill Finger, that being Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams, along with Dick Giordano on inks. So, uh, Ryan, I guess uh, this is uh, – you've heard of these guys before, right? <laughs> Vaguely. Uh, in, in passing, uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure somebody has mentioned them a time or two, um, not the least of which us on the last episode of this show. We talked about them, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. I should have set you up to say I'm, it's the first time I've ever heard of them or whatever. You know, <laughs> yeah, there so, you but... go. There you go. <laughs> Literally never heard of Neil Adams before. I've never – I don't know who that is. Uh <laughs> Isn't he the guy that did Skate Man? I don't, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Miss Mystic? I don't know. Uh, so actually, actually, he, he did he did draw uh, one of my favorite issues of the Avengers. I could have gone that route. It's like there you go. The one, I, I know which. I get, let me guess which one it is. You can tell us which one is it. Yeah, it's this beach at Earth. It's part of the Kree Skull War, right in the middle of it, where uh, Hank Pym has to turn back into Ant Man for like the first time in forever, and has to actually go inside of the Vision to like cure him of this thing. And that's uh, Neil Adams drawing Ant Man. I mean, for just like the first, it's like the first twelve pages, maybe not even that, maybe like eleven pages or something like that, and just this coolest Ant Man adventure. I don't think he has ever looked better in those eleven, like. Jack Kirby never drew Ant-Man that good, and yeah. just it, it looked phenomenal. And it being a reader who really likes Ant-Man and always liked the look of him, but his Silver Age adventures mm, kind of suck compared to everybody else's Silver Age adventures. <laughs> I mean, there's a reason why you know when uh, when the you know the Tales of Tales to Astonish and Tales of Suspense books were going, why they split, and Captain America got his own book, and Iron Man got his own book. And Namor got his own book, and Hulk got his own book. Mm, Ant Man just kind of disappeared. Nobody. Yeah. yeah, like I think didn't like Namor take his spot in Tales yep. to Astonish or something yep, like yep. that. Yeah, yep. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I, that, I mean, for that great. for that one beyond just uh, I mean, we'll, we will talk a lot about Neil Adams and what he contributed to Batman, but uh, yeah, just as a one-off adventures adventures story, that's uh, that's always been one of my favorites. Yeah, and you know, oddly enough, I think in the Kree Scroll War is the only time he really got to draw the Fantastic Four, and it was just announced that him and Mark Wade are doing a Fantastic Four uh, miniseries together. So, yes, yes, uh, I heard about that too. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's 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 pretty interesting. Actually, I'm actually kind of excited for that because I, you know, I've heard a lot of people say, "Well, I still like Neil Adams, but I wish he'd get a strong writer." Well, Mark Wade's. <laughs> Mark Wade made me a Fantastic Four fan. Mark Wade single-handedly made the Fantastic Four like my my favorite Marvel property. So, and I mean, just I mean, I mean, I honestly I haven't really looked that closely at Neil Adams' modern current artistic output. Um, I know it's different. I, I don't know like what his what he brings, but I I'm just curious to see because I don't have old Neil Adams Fantastic Four stuff to to reference or to compare it to. I'm really interested. Like, if I picked up Batman Odyssey, I, I, I think I might, like, balk it. Like, the differences between how he drew Batman 50 years ago versus how he draws Batman in that one. Um, but with FF, I don't have that comparison, so. Right. We'll get into comparing how Batman, he drew Batman uh, 50 <laughs> years ago to more modern times because he went back and put them, the two together by his own, uh, yep. <laughs> apparently by his own initiative. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll discuss that as well. But first, we probably ought to go back 50 years 
and uh, and see how all this uh, this team of uh, Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams came together. So, you know, we have to go back to editor Julius Schwartz, who was the editor of the Batman comics starting in 1964, when he uh, brought in a new look to Batman and refreshed the series with uh, the help of Carmine Infantino primarily. Uh, but uh, post the 1960s television series, which was canceled in 1968, Schwartz had a big problem on his hands because basically sales were down and there was a lot of backlash to the camp nature of the show that the comics had embraced. So he came up with a back-to-basics approach, essentially reverting Batman to the solo nocturnal crime fighter that was created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger. And he began to slowly announce a big change, and that's what he called it, coming to the Batman titles and the letter columns of Batman and Detective Comics, beginning with Detective Number 388, June 1969. The primary architects of this change included established Bat creators Irv Novick and Bob Brown on art and Frank Robbins on stories. And these guys were Golden Age veterans, but they were joined by two relatively new kids on the block in comic books. That would be Denny O'Neill, who had been writing Batman and Justice League of America for over a year at this point, also for Julius Schwartz, but he had never written a solo adventure. Neil Adams had drawn the Elongated Man back up in Detective Comics number 369 from November 1967, but he had yet to draw the lead feature. He did have prior experience with Batman, drawing various covers for both Schwartz and Brave and the Bold editor Murray Boltonoff before beginning interiors with a short run on World's Finest with issues 175 and 176 in May and June of 1968 for editor Mort Weisinger. But fans took notice when Adams began penciling The Brave and the Bold with issue number 79, August-September 1968. Of course, Adams brought that realistic style to Batman, and his insistence on portraying the character in action at night operating out of the shadows was the first real turn toward a change in Batman. It took the fans constantly asking Schwartz, why is the real Batman in Brave and the Bold for the editor to cave and give Adam's interior work on Batman solo titles, beginning with this story here? I've always wondered, why was he so hesitant to give Neil Adams work? I mean, (laughs) I just don't understand. Maybe it was a loyalty thing. It's like, I already got guys drawing Batman. You know, maybe maybe that's what it was. Sure, you know? yeah. Who knows, yeah. Yeah, Irv Novick's drawing Batman. I, I I don't have any work for you. It's like, <laughs> dude. Uh, Robbins, Novick, and Brown had sent Dick Grayson off to college and moved Bruce Wayne out of Wayne Manor and into his Wayne Foundation penthouse. But it would take Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams to truly define the creature of the night persona they were collectively returning Batman to. And that's where we're starting with right here. We're talking about Detective Comics. Number 395, January 1970, on sale November 26, 1969. So on the cover, underneath the box containing a hideous lopsided and overcrowded logo that reads, Detective Comics presents Batman and Robin, along with Carmine Infantino drawn figures of those heroes, we find Neil Adams' eerie masterpiece. In an ancient, crumbling structure, Batman cowers in fear as a beautifully dressed but sinister woman enters. Torch in one hand, Falcon perched on the other. She's accompanied by two very hungry-looking wolves. She gives Batman this ultimatum. I offer you immortality or instant death. Choose Batman now. So what do you think of this cover, Ryan? I love this cover. It, now it is it is not completely accurate to the story of what happens inside the book no. um but i don't care i love this cover i love the mood the sort of dramatic staging with batman looking like shockingly at her with her kind of over top looking down the the menace that uh, the cover represents uh there's just this this dark and mysterious atmosphere 
And no kidding, like, whenever I think of Adam's Batman covers, this is, like, one of the top three, top five that I think of. There, there's, like, the, the Rachel Ghoul, like, the Treasury Edition version, like, that has, like, Rachel mm. Ghoul in the background with uh, Batman screaming over an unconscious Robin. Um, there's um, the, the Joker's Five-Way Revenge that we covered with Michael Bailey and Andy Leyland uh, last month on the, Dark, on the Overlooked Dark Knight podcast. Uh, and a handful of others, but this is definitely up there. I just, I like this cover. When I think of Neil Adams' Batman stories, this jumps to my mind. Yeah, definitely. And you know what's really cool about this cover is if you replace Batman with just an ordinary man, it could be the cover of House of Mystery. Yes, or, yes, it absolutely could. It, yeah, <laughs> it's definitely – I mean this just shows that uh, – I mean we'll get into that, but the, definitely the, uh, the the mystery titles, as DC called them, uh, were definitely influential on all the comic line at this time. And the Golden Age Batman had his run in with the supernatural, uh, so um, you know it it all works together. So yeah, I love this cover. I like like I said that that logo that logo aside, and thankfully on this cover the logo is separated by a banner. There's like a there's like basically a a, a bar you know that it's, <laughs> yeah. that it's resting on, and then underneath that bar is the actual Neil Adams art. We'll we'll get into a different approach next time, but yeah, I, other other than that logo, it's just. Uh, uh, it's it's just fantastic. I, I love the colors and those those earthy those earthy '70s colors that the that DC used. Like we talked about that last time when we were talking to uh, to Andy and Mike. That just uh, I don't know that they 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 just work so well in this uh, mystery horror milieu, if you will. It's just uh, it's just it's just a tour de force. And I'm with you. Yeah, this one comes to mind when you think of Neil Adams Batman. Definitely. Okay, the story is The Secret of the Waiting Grave, story by Diddy O'Neill, art by Neil Adams and Dick Giordano, and editing by Julius Schwartz. Somewhere in the hills of Mexico, the Batman stands over two open graves. The tombstones read Dolores Muerto and Juan Muerto. The birth dates are listed as the early 1840s with no dates of death and evidence. Nearby, the Muertos are throwing a lavish party in their family burial ground. Juan Muerto calls for their games of sport to commence. Thus begins a balloon race, with the objective being the first to reach the cliff across the river. But Pedro Valdez's balloon will never reach its destination. It is attacked by trained falcons, which rip it to shreds. Valdez falls through the sky until he is intercepted by the figure of the Batman, leaping from the shadowy cliffs and diving with Valdez past the rocks into the river below. When Valdez comes to, his savior is gone, having rejoined the party as Bruce Wayne. Bruce notes that the Muertos are infamous recluses, so he is already suspicious of this strange party before the attempted murder. He ingratiates himself to his host, dancing with Dolores and noting how she regards him as being of a younger generation when they have to be around the same age. He also notices a strange sense of mustiness about her as Valdez rejoins the party. Dolores tells her dance partner that they chose to have their party in a graveyard since they do not fear death but instead laugh at it. Death rears its head again when a brazier near Valdez explodes. Bruce recognizes the muffled report of a silenced gun and excuses himself once more from the party. As the Batman, he surprises the gunmen on the nearby hillside. He quickly disarms them, but one of the men blows a high-pitched whistle, and large, trained wolves answer its call. The masked manhunter leaps to a nearby tree and then off the cliff itself before the men have a chance to shoot him down. 
Back at the party, the frustrated muertos decide to take care of their problem personally and invite Valdez to join them in a trip to the old monastery. As they walk toward the old structure, Valdez guesses the surprise involves a flower, while his hosts play somewhat coy. Beneath the cliff, the Batman, having saved himself by grabbing the rope he left behind earlier, eavesdrops on their conversation. Inside the monastery, Valdez finds what he expected, a field of the legendary Sybil flowers, known to give immortal life but also inflict total insanity. Valdez reveals he is a federal agent, and he has been tracking the muertos since they mistakenly left one of the blossoms during a recent hotel visit in Mexico City. Valdez attempts to arrest the couple, but Juan distracts him with a torch, while Dolores gives him a solid chop to the neck. Having heard enough, the Batman swoops down from above, but the muertos are unfazed. They simply walk backwards into the field of Sybils and wait for the flower's hallucinogenic powers to overtake Batman's mind, leaving him screaming in anguish at the horrors he now sees. Juan knocks the day's crusader out cold, tying both vigilante and lawman up with Tenemos vines, which contract the more they are struggled against. They leave the two, preparing to let their trained falcons finish the job. But despite not being able to trust his mind, the Batman still attempts an escape. He removes Valdez's badge and begins to cut against the vines. The Falcons enter the monastery and attack, but Batman isn't sure if they are real. When he feels their talents through his boots, the pain begins to help him concentrate on reality, and he kicks the first away. His hands now free, he catches the other Falcon in his cape and slams it against the stone wall. The Dark Knight drags Valdez to safety, his head beginning to clear in the night air. Knowing the Sybil Flower is far too dangerous to be let loose in the world, he then tosses the torch Valdez left behind into the monastery, sending it and the Garden of Sybils ablaze. The Muertos react in horror as their last patch of flowers go up in flames. Dolores runs to stop the fire and save them, but Juan reminds her exertion will cancel the flower's powers even faster. He chases after her as their bodies begin to age, their limbs stiffening, their skin cracking and creasing, and their hearts withering. The walking corpses collapse and fall into the graves they have long denied. The Batman observes silently for a moment, then scrawls their death year of 1969 on their waiting tombstones. Woo. So what'd you think of the story, Ryan? Um, this is a fun and enjoyable story that unfortunately cracks when you scrutinize it for a podcast, say. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'll, I'll start off with the stuff that I like. And, and I, I think if I had to guess, I would say we, we, you mentioned how the, the mystery line of books that were so popular at this time, and I know a little something about that, uh, having covered a lot of them on uh, uh, Midnight the Podcasting Hour, um, those were really kind of intriguing. And I think that was really – you see the evidence of what they were going for with the story because if I had to guess, I would say either Schwartz or O'Neill or Adams conceived of the last two pages of this story – and worked it out backwards. I think this was probably inspired by that final image of the two of the couples running and just aging slowly until they collapsed dead, and we just get Batman standing over their graves. But the story before that, again, it's fun, it's fast, it's cool. It's a, it's taking Batman out of his element, putting him in this Mexican setting that I really, really like. It gets them a chance to play with uh, more kind of wild animal life with the falcons and the wolves and Batman like climbing rocks and mountains and the rivers and stuff like that. It's a cool-looking setup. It, it really shows off um, what what Neil Adams had been bringing to the table in the Brave and the Bold stories and some of his covers. But there are some parts about the story that I just have questions about. Um, but what did you think about it? 
I yeah, I I enjoy it. I think it's that I I agree completely. I think that that uh, the ending is what they were going for, and and I too. Reading it for a podcast is the first time I really noticed any holes in it, and and we'll get into that. But yeah, um, I you know I I definitely think this was kind of a line in the sand that, that this is not anything like a Batman story that's been published since at least 1939. You know when Batman fought the monk uh, in, mm-hmm. in, in in Europe somewhere. So yeah, this is this is definitely new territory to anybody that's you know that started reading Batman from 1940, 41 onward. Uh, and in fact, you know, in the, uh, in the Batcave Companion by Michael Urey and Michael Cronenberg that we talked about last time, Denny O'Neill uh, had this to say about the story. He said, that was our announcement to the world that this is not your father's Batman, that yeah, the tenor of the series and of the character were changing. So, I, I mean, I guess technically this could be your, this could be your father's Batman if your father was reading Batman in 1939. But <laughs> this is not your big brother's Batman. How about that? Maybe you should have said that. Um, you know, like you said, there's it's the, the setting's different. Um, there, and it, there's no Robin. There's no Alfred. There's no Gordon. There's no Gotham City. And they and they call him the Dread Batman and they call him the Batman, which is something they went back to. Uh, you know, and I, I think the mystery titles were an influence. You know, the comics code was being relaxed around this time, allowing horror, allowing vampires and werewolves in comic books. It's amazing to think there was a time when code-approved comics could not have vampires and werewolves. It's it's insane to think that, but it's true. And and you know, I the a lot of, you know gothic movies, the Hammer films were big. Dark Shadows was big on TV. Yep. Uh, so yeah, I think all this it all kind of coalesced and. Uh, but but it's kind of funny because in that same Batcave Companion, Denny O'Neill, I mean, sorry, Neil Adams is quoted as saying he didn't think much of this story initially. He he's he's quoted as saying, "What the hell? Denny's totally going to screw this up." And <laughs> so and then he goes on to say, "I can't tell you why the secret of the waiting graves in some weird way stands out. It's the first Batman story I officially did. I didn't think it was much of anything." So. I think Neil Adams is selling the importance of this story way too short. Despite a, a few flaws we detected, it's uh, it's it's a sea change for Batman. Yeah. So so getting more deep into the story, what what jumped out at you? What well, what were some of the things you really liked about the story from the from the um, beginning? Anyway. Okay. Well, one one thing that I did want to bring up that kind of like jumped out at me, uh, like when I was just reading it again last night. So this Sybil flower, they suggest, causes immortality, but also insanity. Does that sound familiar, like something else that O'Neill and Adams might revisit later on? (laughs) I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah, it definitely, maybe maybe there's a Lazarus pit underneath this monastery, right? There you go, there you go. That's what I was getting at. Yeah, I was like, I was like, that's... So I was like, maybe O'Neill was like, you know what? I I want to come back to that idea or something like that. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Um. In terms of like page three, the third panel with Batman bringing Valdez out of the water, I really like that as he's like sort of like crouching through like the water and the mud and everything, dragging him up on the shore. The way the water is running off him, I really really like that. I'm actually my, the version that I'm reading for this story is um it was the reprint in the saga of Rachel al ghul uh which was a four issue mini series uh what year was this reprinted uh, late 80s wasn't it 87 yes 
So the uh, I, it, it was yeah, it was a four issue miniseries that collected a bunch of like the well, it was it was the Rachel Ghoul sort of saga and all of his stories that introduced Talia and Raish and all those. The thing is, like each book had like three stories and. Usually one of them had nothing to do with the Rachel Gould thing. It was just another, like, O'Neill Adams story. And this one is funny because this is the only Adams one in here. The other two uh, stories in this particular issue, issue two, are Irv Novik ones. But, yeah, I mean, there's also the digital version. And what I compared last night is I think the, the latest, the digital version of this story has been recolored. I don't think Adams actually redrew anything for it. I don't think uh, so. Un- unless he had redrawn it like before 87 when this was reprinted. The art looks the same. It is recolored. And I actually I don't mind that recoloring. I think it's fine. I, I think the original coloring in this is okay too. Um, but I don't think there's much of a problem with that recoloring. I'm, I'm reading it from the uh, the Millennium Edition when they were doing all those reprints mm-hmm. uh, around 2000. Uh, I guess ninety nine, and uh, they did they did this comic, and you know this is Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams' first tale of the Dark Knight on the cover, and mm. uh, it's got the little foil stamp Millennium DC Comics Millennium Edition, you know, on there. So this is twenty 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 one years old now, um, and and the yeah, it's not been redrawn as far as I know here. One thing that jumps out at me though that that's kind of incongruous is is uh, you've got this wonderfully moody. Uh, splash page and it says a bleak hillside in central Mexico a pair of open graves in the shadow of the dread Batman and the Batman logo is like the old Batman logo yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it just doesn't work there they haven't come up with the 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 70s Batman logos that's like a couple of issues off in Batman uh, a couple of months off in Batman but uh, the ones that will run through the, the Bronze Age um, unfortunately but yeah it, 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 it kind of jumps out at you but you know I Speaking of that splash, I, I took this Batman standing in front of the graves as being part of the story and not symbolic, so it sets up the fact that those graves are waiting because that's the whole, you know. But but at the same time, it's it it, it is kind of strange that you know I mean they they do fall directly into those graves apparently. I mean don't, we don't really see them fall in there, but we assume because Batman standing over it. Their, their graves at the end and there's no bodies near them that they actually managed to fall into the graves. So, uh, or maybe they walked toward the grave because they knew they were dying and they, you know, I guess you could interpret that way too. They think, well, it's finally over. We might as well go, <laughs> go to our final resting place. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, that, you know, when I read this at first, I'm like, you know, synopsizing. I never really, it's another one of those things, like you said, it's when you do it for a podcast, you've got to, ask questions of yourself that you might not as a casual reader, you know, it's like, is, is this part of the story? And mm-hmm. I'm assuming it has to be, you know, so, yeah. and then, then the text breaks, the, the title breaks up the, to the scene of, of the party. So, you know, on, on the positive, I mean, overall, I mean, overall, you know, po- podcasting scrutiny aside, uh, you know, this is a, this is a great Kickstarter for this, this era of Batman and for, and you know, despite what Neil Adams says, I think it's it's a great it's a great showcase for both of them because they're definitely they're definitely showing that they can take Batman, the Batman character, and put him in a totally different setting, in a in a totally different kind of story, make it work. And of course, this being having horror elements, and you know, gives Neil Adams 
uh, a lot to a lot to uh, uh, chances to ply his uh, particular Batman wares. He doesn't he doesn't have to change the setting to a Bob Haney story. It's already tailor made for him here, you know. So. <laughs> I also think there's a little bit, uh, not just with the supernatural horror elements, but a little bit of making Batman a James Bond type, like this international investigator, man of mystery, troubleshooter type of thing. Um, the fact that we're casting him, like, when when in the middle of the story, when Bruce Wayne is wearing his tuxedo and he is dancing with the uh, with Dolores uh, Muerto, I mean, that could be out of a Bond movie. You know, he's he's getting in close, he, he's dressed to the nines, and he's, you know, pumping her for information, kind of, even though it's mostly just in thought bubbles. Uh, I was like, but I can see that's a James Bond move right there, so... Yeah, his frilly shirt looks a little uh, George Lazenby from uh, <laughs> yes. Honor Majesty's Secret Service. You know, and this was like, wasn't this the same year and this around the same time or something like I that? Right so, around yeah. the same time. Uh, now, here's a question I have, and this might be part of your punching the, yeah. the holes you found in it. Do you think, was Batman aware of the Sybil Flower? Did he come to investigate them for that, or did he just come as Bruce Wayne to a party? They never really say. That was my big question. Like, the big thing okay. that, I, that I had at the start of this was, why were Batman and Valdez both investigating the Mortos? Like, what crime were they suspected of committing? Like, they said, like I, I, towards the end he says, you know, if these flowers were unleashed on the public, it could cause mass hysteria. Do we know if the Mortos were planning that or if they were some sort of like, you know, again, James Bondian, like master plan to hold like, the people hostage or releasing like a Captain America mad bomb with these flowers or something like that? And, and the the whole time they, they kind of like the, the Mortos seem to be having this plan, like they're reacting the entire time to this federale investigating them, but we don't know why he's there. Yeah, I don't know. Like, was Bruce Wayne just accepting an invitation to this wedding? If so, why does he start the story dressed as Batman? And he's away from the the wedding, and he's just kind of waiting. And so he's there to actually save Valdez the first time. Like, he had to be casing the joint, investigating them for some reason. But we don't know why. Yeah, the only reason we're given is 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 that Bruce Wayne. They're they're known recluses. And 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 Bruce Wayne, he finds that unusual that they would throw a party to begin with. And so this is that enough to make him like, well, I'm going to slip into my Batman costume and just snoop around. You know, it's uh, it's a little strange to think that that's the you know, but I, I get why Valdez is there because he says, you know, they found the flower and in this their hotel room. And it seems like they may have been suspected, like, you know, maybe they're on to the fact maybe they're on to the fact that these people have. Well, you guys have been alive for a long time, you know. I mean, they've got their their tombstones are sitting out in their burial ground with their <laughs> with their birth dates on it of night eighteen forty and eighteen forty three or whatever it says. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's it's kind of interesting that they're that. I guess that's just part of them being that flippant about it. They're just you know, right. I I guess they're they're so rich they they figure nobody's going to say or do anything to them, and and in their own country they might be right, you know, uh, in, in their own territory anyway, but. Yeah, that's that's the thing that uh, why is Batman? Why is Bruce Wayne there? I mean, one line would have taken care of that. When you know, mm-hmm. Bruce, you know, Batman said, you know, you know, if he said, you know, I I came across a, a, some an Interpol case of, of you know where they were tracking this 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 flower, and it just so happened that Bruce Wayne had an invitation to this party, so I took him up on it, you know. Mm-hmm. Basically, and I mean that. Boom! That's the end of it. You know, there's enough there 
Bruce Wayne got the invitation. There's something weird going on down there. That's enough for, especially back then when Batman wasn't so, I mean, like Gotham wasn't the the hellhole that it would become, you know, when you, you didn't question, well, why would Batman ever leave Gotham? It's so horrible. Like something <laughs> horrible happens every, every two seconds, you know, uh, he could never leave the city because, you know, he couldn't even go on a justice league adventure basically. Uh, but yeah, that, that, that's the, that's the real, the real kind of strain on, well, wait a minute. Does that, you know, the, the, the narrative there. Um, but, uh, just as far as the artwork goes, I mean, it's Neil Adams. It's Neil Adams in his prime, as far as I'm concerned. It's fantastic. The only thing I will say is that, and I, and I think the colorist got confused too. Sometimes there's not enough visual distinction between Valdez and Muerto. And in fact, Valdez's appearance seems to change somewhat. He seems a little. He seems like a younger. Like uh, when he's in the balloon, he doesn't. He doesn't particularly seem like an older fellow. But later on, when it shows him at the party and they're talking to him, he seems like kind of like an older guy. Yeah. There, like he's a few years physically older, and th- there's it's it's kind of hard to tell, but the difference between Juan and Valdez, Juan Muerto and Valdez, and of course Muerto, we know is it means dead in Spanish. Uh, but it, and, and everybody knows that now because we know of the, the day of the dead. But back, back then, I don't think a lot of people, um, you know, that wasn't as prevalent in our culture that, that, uh, in, in American United States culture, I, I don't think that, that, uh, your common comic reader would be that aware of it, you know? Yeah. And I, I think part of it is I, I think maybe it does a little bit go back to the colorist of what you were saying is because there isn't like a good establishing shot of Valdez like before it happens. Like the first time we actually see him is just a close up shot of his face when he's screaming, when he's freaking out because the Falcons are attacking the the balloon and everything, but we don't really see what his, like his body or his suit. And then the next, at least in the, the in the printing that I'm looking at, it's all washed out by the dark colors. It's all monochromatic because of the nighttime, uh, escape without like the city lights and everything so he's just wearing he, like his his suit and his skin they all appear to be kind of like the same color in this printing so then when we see him coming back like when uh the first next time we see him is when the vase explodes next to him from the sniper bullet and he's an all in green and we don't even see that it's like a suit it could be like a military uniform so i i definitely think there's some inconsistent it's it's tough to get a beat on on Valdez throughout the story until the very, like, until page eight when they go down into the Sybil things. And I think part of that is just, uh, in part, the way he was drawn, but mostly the way he was colored. Yeah, I think you're right. And in fact, the version I've got on page five when the Razier or, or base yeah. explodes, uh, he, he's toppling over. He's got on, uh, he's colored in a purple suit. Well, that's what they've been coloring Juan in oh so, yeah. yeah yeah so that definitely makes it you know and, and you don't see Juan in that panel you see Dolores and and Bruce uh so yeah so it almost looks like somebody's trying to shoot her husband or you know hurt her husband or something then that would make a make for a totally different story but uh yeah <laughs> but yeah it's just it's just a coloring error but uh the, the one other thing the one other panel I thought was kind of strange um was the uh the panel with Batman in the tree on page seven, I, I had to look at it twice to really see Batman up amongst the a tree. It's such a tiny little figure. It's just all in silhouette of Batman up in this tree and, and the guys with guns like underneath him. And mm-hmm. it, it's there to establish it's, a, it's, it's this huge, it's this long, tall, tall panel to show 
how high up he is. But it, it, it was just, you know, we've, we all know that Neil Adams can draw Batman in a tree because we're going to see that a lot. In, <laughs> <laughs> so it's just kind of weird that we didn't get that, you know, nice, like over the shoulder shot from Batman looking down at him or something, you know. Uh, I remember there's like a particular uh, cover where Batman is up in, it might be the first appearance of the League of Assassins. I can't remember if it's if it's that one or not, but there's one where Batman's up in a tree and all these guys with guns are underneath and very similar to what's going on right here. Uh, so it just, it just kind of jumped out at me, but you know, I mean, we're nitpicking Neil Adams artwork in his prime, but it's, it's it, the, the one other thing I will say that I've always kind of wondered about is there's that wonderful, of course the, the panel right before the wonderful hallucinogenic panel where Batman's, you know, basically tripping balls. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> uh, the panel before that, when Batman first starts getting overtaken by the flowers, he draws Batman with his arms over his head. It's, it's like. It's like his arms are up in the air, like it's a really tight close-up of his face, but you can see his left arm, and I'm assuming that's his that's his right arm up above it too. It's like, so why does Batman have his arms up above his head in that panel? I've always just kind of that's kind of strange. I don't know, so <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Is there any chance that it's supposed to be the mask just miscolored? I, you know, it's all in one color in my in my panel in in in, in my copy. It could, I guess it could be, but Adams usually didn't make that hard line down his ear like that. It, it you know, it's right. from his because right. his ear to his uh, we're getting really deep on this, but it, from his ear down to his uh, mm-hmm. to the uh, open area of his cowl. Um, yeah, so in, I, in it's, it's definitely drawn different as if it's his other as if it's his right arm. Now his okay his um. His teeth are also colored pink. Um, okay, yeah, every everything's kind of pinkish except his eye yeah. in this uh, in this version. I've got almost like a ruby rose kind of mm. color. Oh, that's Batwoman, or she was anyway. <laughs> uh, but uh, this kind of this uh, this um, yeah, it's 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 really strange. What what does the uh, what does the uh, the uh, freak out look like to you? It's all pink in my version. It's all pink, but he's colored normally. He's in his like normal like uh, blue and and gray trunks and everything with the yellow belt and everything. It, it's a it's a striking panel. It looks great. But yeah, the the um the hallucinations and everything, all the monsters, the dragons that he sees are are just shades of pink. So yeah, yeah, definitely. It's uh, Batman's color in color regular colors on mine too. Yeah, it's it's a really well done. It's. <laughs> Yeah, I I guess I'll oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Go. I was gonna say I guess we should note that uh, Batman here Adams hasn't quite elongated his ears and his cape quite as much as he will at this point. But uh, I mean he's definitely working the cape. But uh, another pointing back to the whole gothic horror, Neil Adams has been quoted as saying he he was influenced by the way uh, Christopher Lee worked his Dracula cape hmm. for his Batman. So yeah. so that's cool. And of course. You know, a lot of people, including Dan Greenfield on Thirteen Dimension, have fan casted Christopher Lee as the Rachel Ghoul who never was. So uh, it all it all comes back to Christopher Lee, apparently. So <laughs> <laughs> the the page after the freak out, after Batman has been subdued when the the Mortos have him and Valdez tied up. This was another one of those things where I just I was reading. I was like, wait, when, when they say, um, they uh, Juan says, shall we unmask the Batman? And Dolores says, no, let him perish in his secret guise. This is fitting. And part of me is like, okay, 
you, this is the perfect opportunity where they should unmask Batman. Like that's the logical thing to do. And you're not even in this box of well, then how do you preserve the secret identity? Because they're going to die at the end of this story anyway. So they will take this secret to the, with them to their waiting graves. Uh-huh. Um, so I was like, this is where it would be logical for them to unmask. But she says, no, this is fitting. And then Juan's line after that, even more fitting will be the manner of his death. A death by birds. Why is that fitting? <laughs> what a flying, bird. flying creature, I guess. <laughs> I guess, but I was like, like, what is ironic or fitting about Batman being killed by birds? Like, I was like, what? <laughs> what does that line mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, that, that was a little strange, and I hadn't even thought about them if they went ahead and unmasked him. That you know, and and it, and I and I don't know if if somebody like thinks to unmask him like every once in a while that kind of. Does because there's so many like why doesn't his usual rogues unmask him you know and I mean yeah the Joker doesn't want to know blah 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 and all that type of stuff but or maybe he does know and he just doesn't care according to what you subscribe to but uh, yeah that's a good point I didn't get the whole bird thing either. other than flying creature you know that's you know I, I yeah I didn't I didn't quite get that so yeah uh, I will say one I keep you know I'm. I, don't get me wrong, guys. This is beautiful. This comic book is absolutely gorgeous. It's Neil Adams, Dick Giordano in their prime. I, I will say, though, I had to look twice at the panel, the second panel on page 13, because it's it's one of those cases I think the coloring is, again, messing with it, because Batman is in yellow. Uh, the flowers are – he's in shades of yellow. The flowers are yellow. The birds that are flying in are in blue. And 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 uh, Valdez in the background are in this again this kind of uh, uh, dusty rose color in the background, and it looks like Valdez is supposed to be lying down, but it looks like he's running away in this panel. Yeah, he does. Yeah. Did you get that? Okay. Yeah. So it's the, it, it looks like he's, or at least he's like starting to get up, like just like the angle of it, like he's he's rotating, like he's crouching, like he's he's about to stand up and bolt or something like that. Um, now the colors are completely different on my version. It's colored correctly so that Batman is blue and gray. The fl- the symbol flowers are pink. The birds are grayish brown and everything. And like the background is all colored, so it's not monochromatic like that. Um, but yeah, it does yeah. look like Valdez is either creeping away or yeah something. I, I will say it's it's uh, it's kind of interesting. Batman during there's many stories that Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams drew where Batman kills animals, and I'm pretty <laughs> sure he, he kills his falcon because he. You know, he chunk, he slams it into the the stone wall inside his cape. But he killed the shark in the Joker's Five Way Revenge, and he'll kill a leopard or a panther or something in the first Rachel Ghoul story. Yeah, uh, he snaps his neck. Uh, so yeah, Batman, Batman's gonna be Peter's gonna be on Batman's ass. That's all I've got. <laughs> so is Rob Kelly. I can't believe Rob Kelly likes Batman after all this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Rob's going to be on Batman's ass. Yeah, definitely. But, uh, you know, I, I think when something's trying to kill you, you've got, you know, self-defense kicks in, you know. But, uh, but yeah, it is yeah, they definitely uh, – they, they, he definitely does not seem to seem to care uh, that he has to kill – when he has to kill animals here. So, yeah, uh, I, I I like the fact that, uh, you know, it's kind of fitting that the torch – it's the, the torch that uh, Juan left behind – is uh, what Batman uses to to burn the flowers. So, uh, you know, it's fitting. He basically, you know, uh, left the instrument of his own demise behind. So that I, I thought that was cool. And it looks 
the panel where uh, Batman's holding the the torch, and in my version, it's everything's again colored in uh, basically yellows and oranges. Uh, it looks really sharp. So yeah, I thought that was cool. Yeah, I. What did we think about? I, I, I do have a question. Speaking of coloring, what did when the Muertos actually die and 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 crumble in that in that last panel? Are they completely white for you? Their bodies are not their outfits. Yeah. Yeah, it's. I mean, yeah, all the all the non inked, uh, basically everything that's not inked is is white on mine. It's like they uh, their progression is they're in like. Like they're in shades of orange as they're running toward the graves, and and then as they get closer in the bottom three panels, first it's green, then it's blue, and then they're just in white, and the the background's purple, and it's 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 kind of a neat thing because it like literally looks like the last bit of life is just drained out of them. Oh it's yeah, a, I yeah. I kind of like that effect. No, this is this is colored normally. It's a greenish landscape. They're in their blue and purple. Uh, suits or outfits, respectively. They've got their flesh tone, but yeah, they're like just crumbling towards the end. But uh, no, I kind of like that idea of like this sort of whiteout by the end of it. I think that would be more interesting. If I had to guess, and I could be wrong, I, I wouldn't doubt that this was recolored by Adrian Roy because she really liked to uh, do those monochromatic colors, especially like with like with light and and. Mm. Uh, and you know when when anybody was near a flame, they were in orange. You know, yeah. uh, and I, and I always thought it was really sharp as a kid. I always thought it was really cool how she did that. And and of course, you know, she colored like every Batman comic for like twenty years, basically. Right. Uh, so if they had to recolor this for the for this reprint, it it wouldn't you know it wouldn't surprise me uh, that uh, that she did. Too bad none of us have the original. I have I have like. It's really frustrating because I have almost every Detective Comics around this era, except the two that we're covering. This time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have either either one of these two issues, uh, uh, you know, including all the early Man Bat stories. So, yeah, it, you know, one thing I think we should mention, you know, Batman isn't, you know, of course we're used to Bat God at this point, but I think Batman here is even a little less composed than he had been p- portrayed. Uh, you know, in the Silver Age, I mean, Batman is very vulnerable here. He makes mistakes. I mean, he he walks into their trap. He freaks out from the drugs, uh, from the flower, you know. And, you know, that's one thing that we brought up when we did the Joker's Five-Way Revenge. Denny O'Neill writes a very, he writes a very human Batman. Like, personally, he's very human, but he's he's definitely upping the you know, the, the, the supernatural creature of the night angle to his foes to like an 11, because Mm -hmm. like they always react in fear and they always say things like he's not human and, and, and things like that. But it's like this Batman in his own private thoughts and what, you know, what he goes through in these stories is very human. So I think, I think that's it. That's an interesting take. It's like the, you know, like the, the persona of Batman is this, this uh almost uh you know mythic figure but he's he's definitely got he's he's got a little bit of clay on his feet if they're not of clay then he's got some on his feet (laughs) uh so you got anything else to add about this one no just overall i mean there it's got it's got a few little flaws but i mean as as the first thing that these guys collaborated on for in with the, the batman character um it's it's an enjoyable read. It's a good sign of things to come. And like I said, I, I think, you know, Denny O'Neill, 
writing the story as he did, changing the setting, dropping the other characters, and going into a, a more gothic story. You know, that was that that was his line in the sand. Adam's artwork was obviously a line in the sand from nothing against Irv Novick and, and Bob Brown, who did good work, especially I'm a fan of what Irv Novick did. And Irv Novick will definitely pick up a little Adam's influences yeah. as we go along. And, and uh, he'll he'll kind of start to alter his take on Batman to more match what what Adams is doing. But if 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 uh, Frank Robbins had written this issue and Adams had drawn it or if O'Neill had written it, and Irv Novick or Bob Brown had drawn it, I don't think you would have got, I don't think people would remember this as the story that, you know, this issue, this issue that, that, that changed Batman, you know, that, that began, I mean, it essentially began the modern take on Batman. I mean, they've extrapolated, they've, they've moved maybe too far beyond this version to a point according to, you know, what you think, but definitely the, the version of Batman we get today owes a lot to this to this version of Batman that started right here. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll take a quick br- promo break. When we come back, Ryan will talk to you about Detective number 397. Don't go away. My name is Jesse, a Trekkie. A radiation wave hit and I got shot through a wormhole. And now I'm on some distant corner of the galaxy on a podcast, an index show about a strange science fiction series. Help me, please. Is there anybody out there who can hear me? I'm co-hosting with an insane Farscape fan. I'm doing everything I can. I'm just looking for a way home. What the Frell, a Farscape podcast. Available only on the Council of Geeks podcast network. Detective Comics issue 397 has a March 1970 cover date, but according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, and it truly is amazing, the on-sale date for this issue was January 27th of 1970. The book cost 15 cents, and for that you got a Batman feature that we will be discussing, as well as a Batgirl backup story by Frank Robbins and Gil Kane. The cover by Neil Adams shows what looks to be a slightly older, slightly rotund man, possibly wealthy given his smoking jacket, and the fact that he is pushing Batman off of a balcony, and they appear to be breaking part of the stone or possibly wooden railing or foundation. The man appears to be in a trance of some sort as he jumps straight toward a ghostly, translucent woman hovering in the air, and he shouts, Out of my way, Batman! Not even you can stop me from joining her! The masthead for this issue, the logo says, Detective Comics presents Batman and Batgirl all in a yellow bat cape box with Batman's cowled face between the words Detectives and Comics. And we see figures of Batman and Batgirl flanking the text. Chris, what do you think of the cover? I think the cover's fantastic. I think the logo is god-awful hideous, and my god, it's screwing this cover up. <laughs> uh, I... Big yellow bat. It's lop the I hate that the Batman and Batgirl are lopsided. It's like it's not and it's not even lopsided. It looks like it's a mistake. The words Batman and Batgirl and the fact that Batgirl, the Batman and Batgirl figures by Carmine Infantino, the Batgirl figure is like her foot is almost touching the ghost's head is is just it's like ah no, no, no. <laughs> I just I, I mean these are such wonderful covers and they've got this 
god awful hideous logo on them. I'm sorry. It's just uh, oh, I, I miss our I miss our our uh, Marshall Rogers era detective yeah. logo right <laughs> yeah. now. I was gonna say the same thing. I was like, boy, what a time for that one with the the Batman profile with his cape stretching out. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that way you get Batman on there, and it's like, oh yeah. I mean, I'm all for Batgirl by uh, Gil Kane because I've I've got that. Uh, I've you know I've got a lot of those stories in the originals, but I've got the showcase presents with those and all. They're wonderful, but but uh, yeah, but the cover itself. I mean, I just love the fact that this this you know not to be uncharitable, but this this fat guy is like pushing Batman off this off this roof in a balcony and 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 just running him over to get at this ghost. I mean, it's it, it really does paint this picture of like what the hell kind of story is inside this thing. I got I got to read this because. Obviously, this is a ghost that that this guy's obsessed with, and it, he he's he's just mowing Batman over, and he's taking part of the balcony with him, and yeah, and I love the purple, and and the colors are great. It's yeah, everything about it, you know, from logo down is is beautiful. But yeah, that logo, oh, yeah. <laughs> this cover, and I put this challenge to our listeners, anybody who wants to get funny and creative, this cover is a meme waiting to happen. Because yeah. you can you can replace the text. You can't stop me from joining whatever, and drop in another image over her. It could be like a box of KFC or like tacos or something like that, or or the the Snyder Cut Blu-ray or something like that. Just put something else in there that this the guy is just willing to just barrel right through Batman in order to get. I this could be I, this could be a hilarious meme if somebody got really creative. A, a few a, f- a few months ago, it could have been a roll of toilet paper. You oh know? God! Yeah, <laughs> some disinfectant spray. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, you know our uh, listeners will probably rise to the challenge on that. I'm looking forward to that now. <laughs> me too. Me too. All right, let's get into the story. Paint a Picture of Peril is written by Denny O'Neill, illustrated by Neil Adams with Dick Giordano inking, and edited by Julia Schwartz. As night falls on Gotham Bay, a quartet of men dressed in wetsuits and scuba gear climb out of the water and onto the marina. Tomorrow, this site will kick off the annual Marine Festival charity event, but tonight this will be the scene of a most curious robbery. The four frogmen knock out a security guard walking along the pier and head toward the art exhibit sponsored by Bruce Wayne, when suddenly the caped crusader drops into their midst. He kicks one in the face, punches another in the ribs, and jabs the butt of the guy's own spear gun into his nose. But as most of the frogmen start to panic, their leader threatens to kill the unconscious security guard with his spear gun. The leader tells one of his partners to grab what they came for, but the other frogman thinks they'd be crazy to turn their back on the Batman. They have the chance to kill him now, they should take it. And besides, the Dark Knight is creeping them out by standing there, staring at them and not saying anything. Impatient and fearful, two of the frogmen fire their spear guns at the Batman, who falls off the pier into the water. Then they grab a painting that they'd been hired to steal and all dive back into the water to make their escape. As the frogmen swim away, Batman emerges from the water, having shifted his body behind his cape just as the men fired their spears. The only real damage he took was one of the points hit a nerve cluster in his arm, leaving it functionally useless until he heals up for a couple of days. With his one good arm, Batman climbs out of the water to find out what the thieves stole. 
he is surprised to discover that they only took one piece from the art gallery, and the least valuable one at that, a painting by Vander Smuts called The Startled Mermaid. After calling in help for the security guard, Batman retreats to the midtown penthouse of his civilian identity, Bruce Wayne. There, he treats his wounded arm and does a yoga routine to accelerate his body's healing process, all while the television, apparently left on by the cleaning woman, runs a Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous type of program on a reclusive millionaire named Orson Payne, who lives in a castle that was shipped from Spain to an island off the coast of Gotham. Payne had once been engaged to an opera singer named Katarina Valence, but she mysteriously disappeared, and since then, Payne has never left his castle. As Bruce finishes his yoga, Kathy, the cleaning woman, returns to pick up her handbag. She turns off the television, calling it a vile thing. Bruce is surprised to hear her speak so derisively about the TV, given how much she watches it. He begins to think about the bizarre robbery at the marina, and he suddenly remembers that when he was underwater, the algae seemed to glow as though lit by a power source, such as a submarine. Donning his Batman disguise once more, the detective takes one of his custom submersible sleds back to Gotham Bay. The sled's infrared scopes are equipped to spot residual radiation left by a low-yield nuclear submarine. Once he finds it, Batman tracks the sub's path back to its source at one of the islands where many affluent Gothamites reside. He docks his sled near the submarine and climbs a ladder to a sprawling island estate with fortified walls and armed guards. Batman knocks out one guard on the perimeter before he can send up an alarm. Recognizing the grounds as the castle estate of Orson Payne, Batman climbs up a tree to avoid a passing security patrol. He leaps from the tree to a windowsill and hears Payne himself talking inside. Talking to no one, Batman thinks at first, but as he listens closer, he realizes that Payne is addressing a room full of paintings and statues and busts. All of them bear a resemblance to Katarina Valance, the woman Payne loved 25 years ago, but none quite capture the beauty of his memory. Batman enters the room, accusing Orson Payne of madness, as well as stealing a good number of the art pieces here that weren't for sale, such as the mermaid painting pilfered from the Marine Festival earlier that night. Payne admits to all of it, and then fires a crossbow at Batman. Batman dodges the bolt, which shatters a bust behind him. Payne runs out of the room, screaming that Batman will never catch him. Batman pursues him to a museum gallery within the castle. Calling on Payne to surrender, the Dark Knight falls through a trap door in the floor. Payne taunts the Batman and pulls a lever, lowering a two-ton deadfall down into the pit, where it will crush Batman. With only one chance for survival, Batman whips out a batarang and throws it out of the pit. It wraps around a heavy golden chandelier. Batman tugs at the rope, ripping the chandelier from the ceiling. It crashes on the floor over the pit, blocking the deadfall from descending. Batman is then able to climb up between the heavy weight and the chandelier. Batman once more gives chase, but this time he sees Orson Payne speaking to a ghost-like vision of Katarina Valance that only he can see. He follows her off a balcony and begins to fall. At the last minute, Batman swings down from a line and catches Payne before he breaks his neck. The next day, Bruce Wayne watches the TV report the capture of Orson Payne, who will be remanded to a mental hospital. Kathy, the cleaning woman, comes in and tells Bruce he shouldn't watch such trash. 
Bruce figures out that it's not the TV she has objected to both times, but the subject on the screen, Orson Payne. Bruce asks Kathy if she was ever an opera star, and she reveals that a quarter of a century ago she was Katerina Valance, but she gave up her career to escape from Orson Payne's obsession. And that is the story. So, Chris, what did you think? Where's the ghost? <laughs> <laughs> no, I kind of like the twist. No, I, I this is this is a fun one. It's not. It doesn't have that. It doesn't quite have that epic feel of 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 the uh, the first story we talked about. But uh, yeah, it's it's fun. I mean, there's some uh, there's some neat bits here and there. And uh, I had never read this story before, oddly enough. And all the you know, oddly enough, there's not. I mean, there's not a. Def- I mean, there's a Batman. There's the Batman illustrated by Neil Adams books, but we'll get in. We'll get into why I don't have all those. But these haven't been reprinted as often as you think they would altogether. Uh, so I, I got this confused with another issue I had. I think actually the issue after this, which has got a Neil Adams cover, but the interiors are by Bob Brown, and it's a story by Frank Robbins and uh, yeah, Detective Three Ninety Eight and. When I was in the late 80s, when I was gobbling a lot of these up at when I got access to comic shops and before the prices went insane on them, uh, I would buy anything that had a Neil Adams cover. And almost every Batman book during this period had a Neil Adams cover. And I'll be honest, when I got it home and opened it up and Neil Adams hadn't drawn it, I was disappointed. So, <laughs> but, but, uh, you know, it's like, oh man, it's like, it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's almost like, you know, buying a pack of trading cards. It's like, I already got this one or, oh, not that guy, you know, not that character, uh, or, you know, for comic cards anyway, right. uh, or, you know, baseball cards, a player you don't like or some team you don't like or something. Right. But, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, but yeah, you know, I, so this was kind of, this was totally new to me and, uh, I, I was, uh, I, I, the twist, uh, I didn't expect the twist because I, I had already bought into the whole ghost thing from the cover. I assumed that, uh, she was a, uh, that Katarina was a ghost. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I didn't expect it to be, uh, to Kathy, to the char woman to be, uh, to be Katarina. So yeah, <laughs> good one on you, Denny O'Neill. <laughs> I don't think this one is quite as striking or memorable as Secret of the Waiting Graves. Uh, I definitely think, like, the exotic setting, the real, like, uh, like the striking imagery at the end of them turning into dust, like them super aging fast, like Indiana Jones and the, and the Last Crusade, that is, like, a striking and memorable type of story. This one doesn't have that. This one, in a sense, is much closer to a conventional Batman story. We're set in and around Gotham most of the time. We have Bruce Wayne going back home as Bruce Wayne and kind of reassessing, using more of his detective skills and technology to to suss out what's going on with this story. But I, I mean, I still, I really enjoy this. I like, like the, just the, the first page with the, the, the guys in their scuba gear, the frogmen coming out of the water and everything, uh, how Batman drops down, how he doesn't say anything the whole time. It really kind of lends it that spooky, eerie idea of like why they're uncomfortable and why they end up attacking him. There, there's one thing about this story though that kind of really bothered me, which is because he makes a note in the beginning, Batman hurts his arm. He has this arm injury, and he says this arm will be useless for that. And throughout the rest of the story, that do, it's not a problem for him. He has to do severe physical feats with that arm that he shouldn't be able to do. And I was like, this is like a Chekhov's gun that never goes off. Like this is. Like, yeah, the, the only the only thing he says is, uh, yeah, he says, "Got him," but I took the strain of that fall on my bad arm. 
that's the only thing he says when he catches pain. That's that's the only other reference we get to it. Yeah. yeah what about the yeah. fact that he has to climb up a tree? He has to jump to the side of a building and like catch that on the windowsill. He has to like like climb out of this like trap door pit and everything like that in like the last second. I was like, this is this is a physically strenuous day for Batman. I was like, and he shouldn't be able to do these things if his arm is really that messed up, like he said it was after he got shot with a spear gun. Yeah, especially like when he grabs onto the window seal. I I thought there was going to be something about his bad arm there, and he was got like he ended up hanging hanging from one arm. But yeah, they don't mention it again until that last little bit. Yeah, so <laughs> I will say I like you brought up when the the frogman the encounter with the frogman. I mean, there's some great action bits when Batman swing in swings in and kicks that guy in the face. He kicks him so hard that the elastic of of his uh, mask, his scuba mask, actually, like, pops off his face and stretches <laughs> out. Which, I don't know if that would actually work in real life that way, but it, it sure looks cool. And and Batman just standing there, not saying anything, reminds me of the beginning of the 89 movie when Batman's on the rooftop with the two the two crooks. And oh, they, yeah. yeah. And he's just coming at him, and he, he's silent, and they shoot him, and he falls over. But then, of course, he gets back up later, you know. Uh, that's It, it kind of reminded me of that, but... It is, uh, it is kind of, you know, it's got to be kind of shocking for readers too. I, I, I can't imagine the. Remember the last time Batman, you know, I mean, he looks like he gets point blank shot with a couple of spears off a spear gun, and it's like, you know, I mean, he may have been grazed or something, you know, in the Silver Age, but probably nothing that looked this brutal. So that had to be quite a shock to readers. And and Denny O'Neill played around with Batman seemingly being killed on camera. Multiple times. I mean, the beginning of the the famous uh, Adams uh, O'Neill Adams Night of the Reaper story yes. has Batman like you know staked to a tree with a machete or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So I mean, you know, so <laughs> they he liked that visual of of, of a dead Batman. So <laughs> yeah. uh, I will say, you know, going back to that, um, you know, I've got the our, our my Bible for this uh, this series we're doing here as uh, the the Batcave Companion. Neil Adams had remembered that uh, Denny O'Neill had uh, wanted to uh, cast uh, Orson Welles as Orson Payne, but Neil Adams didn't want to quite be that obvious about it, even though, of course, his name's Orson, and he's like, well, I'm just going to make him, you know, a fat guy, and, and, but he said some, he said a lot of people picked on, up on it, his name's Orson, he's heavy, uh, you know, at that time, Orson Welles had become very heavy, uh, so, you know, they, they pick up the connection, and, and Michael Cronenberg himself pointed out that there's some aspects of this that are like Citizen Kane with the Welles character infatuated with a singer and mm-hmm. uh, so, so there's some so there's some carryover from from Citizen Kane which Rob Kelly's ears just perked up again it's like you know they you know if, if for a good thing this time not killing animals so <laughs> <laughs> I will question one thing real quick a seaside art exhibit I, I, I'm not sure that the salt water would be would be conducive to <laughs> To having paintings on display, I could be wrong. I don't. I'm landlocked. I don't live near a seaside town, so they're very well. I mean, but this is literally right on the docks. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, the salt, the salt air uh, might be a little, might be a little much on the paintings. I, I, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think it's. I mean, the fact that the, the he mentions that the, the crooks have a low yield nuclear submarine at their disposal that they can use for this robbery. It's like. Really? If you have that and you're stealing a painting from an art exhibit? <laughs> uh, that reminds me so much of the Batman 66 movie when Batman calls up the the Commodore at the Navy. Schmidt and and, 
Yeah, 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 yeah. And it, well, and he calls up the naval guy, and he's like, he's basically like, you know, he gives him grief for selling an un- unlicensed <laughs> nuclear submarine to to P and Gwen, to you know. P. Gwen, yeah. It, yeah, and he's like, and and, and Batman give and Bat- Adam West gives him like, you know, the 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 kind of snide, mm. you know, dis- I'm disgusted with you, and he's like. Good day. When he gets off the phone with him, you know, it's just that's what it made me think of. It's like, who is selling these 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 nuclear submarines, even low yield ones, to just random citizens? I don't care how rich this guy is, you know. I mean, it's. I mean, I heard that um, you know, I, this being a, being a being a Disney Parks guy, uh, that when they decommissioned the uh, the submarines they used to have. Uh, I can't remember if it was the ones at Disney World they had or the original version of the ones they still have in Disneyland. They had to get somebody. They literally had to get somebody from the Navy to come and and like say they were decommissioned because they had enough of them that that it was considered a fleet basically. <laughs> so so who the crap selling these nuclear submarines to some Orson Welles like rich guy? You know it's. <laughs> Oh man, yeah. <laughs> what do you think about the the death trap? I mean, he he, he had it ready for whoever showed up, I guess. <laughs> uh, he did. He did. Uh, it's intense. Uh, it's the uh, it's the the one little concern thing is that the, the just the timing of the fact that he's lowering this thing down there, but it's slow enough that Batman can whip out his battering, uh, pull down the chandelier, and kind of get it like wedged in there, and, uh, and there's enough room that he can climb out. It's it's one of those things that like it's it's a little bit too complicated that gives it the gives him the escape but I like the way it's drawn it's an intense action sequence so yeah yeah it's it's really cool I like and I just I just kind of like that image of of Neil Adams drawing Batman that upshot of Neil Adams Batman holding the batarang in the mm-hmm. bat rope mm-hmm. that's cool yeah uh, and he does say it came basically. It came with the castle that the, yes. <laughs> the 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 Spaniard who owned the castle apparently was. You know, it was a castle, so of course he had you know death traps and torture devices and and uh, although I, I will say the interior of it doesn't look overly castly. It looks it looks a little mo- more modern the way yeah. Adams draws the yeah. the interior of it. But you know, but uh, you know, it's it, it could be a you know more forward thinking than your typical you know. Battlements type castle, but that yeah. same page again, like on, on panel two, when Batman falls through the trapdoor, he lands like on his back and shoulders. He like spreads his arms out to cushion it, but it's like that would have been the moment where it's like, oh, my arm is dead again. Like all that yoga that I did, just uh, just to nothing. It's like now he's like, you would add that extra layer of like helplessness or something like that. But right, right. Uh, I guess uh, speaking of yoga, I guess we need to address the fact that. The versions that you're going to find of this story on Comixology or the DCU app have the redrawn art that Neil Adams did for those Batman Illustrated books. And that panel of Bruce Wayne doing yoga in particular, his redrawn face, oh man, uh, that's rough. I'm not, you know, that's that's a case where, Neil, why? Why, Neil? Why? It's just, it's, it, it is so... It is so scratchy, and it, it is really rough. Luckily, our pal Rob Kelly. We keep talking about Rob. We, he, 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 we've said his name three times. He may he may appear. I'm, I could be wrong. He, luckily, he had a scan when this was reprinted in uh, limited collector's edition C44. I think it was C44. That was uh, that's the Batman Treasury with the uh, Wally Fax painted Batman cover. He he he. Luckily, he sent us scans of it so we could look at the at least the original art, and it probably was still the original coloring in this one too. I imagine, 
Um, and, and thank goodness, because yeah, that, that was rough. It was rough. So I'm, I'm really glad. There's a few other panels that are redrawn too. Um, it's particularly Bruce Wayne's face throughout the story is, is, is redrawn more so than his Batman. But, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm definitely glad we got this, the original art scans. <laughs> yeah. I don't. I don't. I mean, I, I I looking at it, comparing it to the comicsology version. I don't think it's as noticeable as some other times when when Adams does it. I mean, he's definitely he's adding more hatches, scratches, which just makes him look like ten years older than I think he should. I I don't think it's necessarily as bad as that. It. Yeah. I let me put it this way: it could be worse. Adams has done worse. Yeah. It, it, um, yeah, yes, yeah. But one of the things that yeah. I actually noticed, and I was, I was interested in this, is the, God, what page would it be? It is the page when um, Batman is uh, in, infiltrating the castle compound. It's the three panels where he, the the guard spots him with the flashlight. He punches the guard in the face, and he's leaping over the barbed wire fence uh, of the wall. On the treasury page that Rob had the scan of, uh, there's a puzzle little thing at the bottom of that page. Um, and I imagine that's there because I, I, I'm figuring probably in the original version there was an ad or something on that bottom fourth of the page. Yeah, yeah. On the digital one and the one that's been reprinted and collected, there isn't that space. Those three panels have been stretched out to fill the entire page. So it's it's there you don't have that gap of space. I mean, there is, like, some of the panels go a little bit lower, especially that last one with the tree, with uh, him jumping over the fence. And I wonder if Adams did actually redraw part of that panel just to give it more space, or if that's the way he drew it originally, and they cropped some of it out um, in order to put the ad, but maybe he still had the original art on hand. I, I don't know. Um, but mm. it definitely looks like they, they've stretched the panels a little bit, but there is also some new drawing of the tree, and the rest, I mean, is basically just black walls from the shadow. But, yeah, he yeah. added a little bit on that page. Oh, cool. I, I hadn't I, – once Rob sent me these scans, I didn't go back and look at the, <laughs> the comicsology or the – I was on the DCU app. I didn't really yeah. look at that one that much again other than just flip through to see, like, the, the panels he redrew. I will say on that same page, the, the panel where Batman's punching that guy in the face – that is like one of the best. I mean, it li- literally looks like he he's caved this guy's face in. I mean, his no. I mean, it doesn't look like he's like killed this guy or anything, but he's his nose is smushed over to the side, his mouth. I mean, it look literally looks like Batman punched just punched a big pile of dough. Like, it, 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 I mean, it, it really. But, but I mean, it looks like it looks like it would. I mean, it, it it's really well done. I mean, it, it's not it's not a nuclear explosion like a Jim Aparo punch, but it, or it, it's not you know people sit flying 40 feet away like a Gil Kane punch, but it, it's more of a realistic just punch to the face, and it really it really lands really well. <laughs> Facial reconstructive surgery is in this guy's future. <laughs> oh, definitely, yeah. This guy's missing teeth. He's, his nose is completely, I mean, he's got an Owen Wilson nose now. There's no two ways about it. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, totally, it's totally jacked up. <laughs> and the page after that, we see Batman in a tree. <laughs> you see that? Yeah, Batman the tree, the tree. With escaping and down. Yeah, yeah, we love that. I mean, that's Neil Adams. You know, that's what that's what I was missing in that other in the other story is that you know more of a picture like this of, yeah, yeah. of Neil Adams Batman. Yeah, the I, I, the pain looks particularly Orson Welles like in that uh, 
in the uh, fourth panel on that uh, the page where we get the big reveal of him. I don't know what page it is, but where he's looking at the the statue or yeah. the bust. Yeah. Uh, he looks more Wells like there than he does anywhere else because Adam said he didn't intent intentionally. Um, you know, he tried to kind of move away from that, which. You know, we're, we brought up Christopher Lee last time. There's a, there's a Mike Grell Batman, uh, Elliot S. Magan, Mike Grell Batman story in Detective a few years down the line where he, he meets a vampire that Grell originally drew to look exactly like Christopher Lee until Julia Schwartz said, no, you got to <laughs> fix that. But you can still tell it's supposed to be Christopher Lee. So. Yeah. <laughs> right before that, when Bruce goes back to his penthouse... Uh, sorry, it's a, it's the last panel on the page when Bruce goes back to his penthouse uh, after he's swimming through the water. That penthouse, that really quick little shot, for some reason, it reminds me of his penthouse in the movie The Dark Knight. Like with the, the roof, little access, uh, little whatever it is, little uh, veranda or balcony or something like that. Something yeah. that, that building reminds me of the, the skyscraper penthouse in The Dark Knight. Yeah, I can see that, yeah. And, and you know, the interior of this actually looks pretty consistent with the way most people will draw the the, the Wayne penthouse doesn't look quite the same as it will later because I, I think Terry Austin I think it's actually in this treasury that Rob sent us is the the drawings of the penthouse that uh, that we were talking about when we did the Marshall Rogers the Steve Englehart issues the, I brought up that I thought Terry Austin had had designed it and I think that's where this uh, these drawings came from and but the interior actually is pretty consistent even if the exterior isn't it looks kind of like that same kind of modern with those same kind of chairs and things like that yeah uh, you know I mean, other people you know it varies according to who draws it but um, speaking of which I think it's interesting that Neil Adams here he draws this little bat sled which I think is cool and it would be a t- you know totally should be an accessory for a Kenner Batman action figure <laughs> Uh, and in fact, it probably was at one point, but basically, but um, it's very bat centric. It has a bat symbol on the front. And in the previous issues of Detective where Bob Brown or I think I think in particular, Bob Brown drew one where they introduced a car. I can't I didn't look it up exactly, but it's it's Batman's new ride and it's not called a Batmobile. And it's supposed to be like this this sporty model that's not going to be recognized. It doesn't have any bat iconography on it, although it's got it's got yellow striping and this kind of it does have this kind of weird shaped fin thing on the top of the hood. So it pretty much is a Batmobile, but they were basically saying we're not going to use the Batmobile. They were pulling away from the the Barris designed Batmobile that they've been using in the comics, the George Barris TV Batmobile. Uh, but uh, this is Neil Adams saying, no, he's going to use bat stuff. And pretty soon he's going to design the the Batmobile, the Corvette Batmobile with the with the bat hood painted on the bat head painted on the hood uh that that's famous from this era and as we said before seems to inform matt reeves upcoming the batman movie batmobile mm-hmm. uh so so yeah it's nice to see neil adams is like no he's still batman he's still going to use bat things you know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to heck with this you know complete uh no he's going completely uh you know uh low profile no and in that whole that yellow blue car was was actually would have stood out more than the standard Batmobile, but they made a big deal out of it. I should have looked that up, but they, they made a big deal out of it. We're not going to use the Batmobile anymore. We're using this. And it's like, dude, that just looks like a Batmobile without a bat symbol on it. You know, <laughs> I think it's kind of funny. You know, we brought up the death trap. Both these stories feature death traps. This one's more of an obvious because it's like literally a built death trap, but they both have death traps that Batman has to escape. So, 
they're pulling away from the TV show, but one of the coach, one of the hallmarks of the TV show, which they of course got from the comics, was the death trap. Every episode had to have a death trap. So, you know, there there there's still elements of that that you just can't escape. That's just pure Batman. Right, so, right. yeah, there's. I mean, there's that, no- that's something. Also, going back to the Golden Age, I mean, that's wasn't something like that. Like, I, I mean. Almost every pulp, like comic book story, almost every superhero had that type of routine thing where they get captured in the middle and they're, you know, tied to some death trap that they have to escape. Like that was, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the very first Batman story that 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 big glass tube that comes down over him and the guy, and he's got a is you know it's putting gas out and he's got to break out. So yeah, it's it's in the case of the Chemical Syndicate. So yeah, definitely. I will say we brought up when we did the on the Overlook Dark Knight. Uh, when we covered the the Joker's Five Way Revenge, they Batman talked about that uh, you know the 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 Shark Tank was there was it was there was no way of climbing out. It was too uh, sheer and it was too uh, you know there was nothing to grab a hold of. And he says the same thing here. There's no chance of climbing out, but then he does. <laughs> <laughs> he says that in the panels before, and it's like. But then, as soon as the 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 deadfalls wedged in there with the chandelier under it, it doesn't show him using the bat rope. Maybe he did climb the bat rope. I, ass- I assumed that he would have used the rope, even though it's not drawn that way. Yeah, because yeah, it shows him like literally pulling himself out, not holding onto the rope. But uh, yeah, uh, I did think that the that Orson Payne's, you know, as he he's hugging Batman's arm. As Batman grabs him, like he's like he's got a hold of his Katarina. You do you do feel sympathy for this guy. This guy is completely bonkers. Right. I mean, yeah, he's done some bad things, but he's he's so out of his mind. You almost, you know, you you, you feel pity for him because he's just he's he's totally he's totally lost it. Apparently, he was you know too possessive so much that you know Katarina left her career behind and her wealth behind to be a cleaning lady. But <laughs> so he must have been a real pill, you know. But still. <laughs> That's a pretty traumatic situation, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, All right. Well, anything else about this story? No, I, I I agree. I think it's I think it's a fun story. I I think there's I think the twist works, especially because like the cover dupes you into thinking that it's ghost. And, and again, and honestly, the era from which this story is from, because there was so much supernatural right. uh, goings on in even your standard, not only in Batman but like in Teen Titans and just about every DC comic had some kind of spooky something going on in them. I mean, there was a lot of horror going on in the superhero comics. So the fact that this isn't a horror that actually has no horror angle is a surprise. And actually is a kind of clever that they, I don't know if O'Neill really intended it that way, but in hindsight, uh, it, it makes the twist even better. It gives you a, I'm a M night Shyamalan kind of twist or something. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then with that, we're going to take another promo break and we'll come back on the other end with listener feedback from the last episode. Don't go away. come in all shapes and sizes coming soon from the fire and water podcast network it's digest cast a new show dedicated to our beloved pocket-sized treasures from that bygone era of the 70s and 80s hosted by the fire and water podcast team of robin shag and we'll be joined from time to time by special guests it's digest cast because big things come in small packages coming soon to the fire and water podcast network
On the last episode, we covered Batman 234 as part of our crossover with Michael Bailey and Andy Leyland of the Overlooked Dark Knight podcast. The first comment we got was from Clinton Robison from Coffee and Comics blog and podcast. I was already loving the Batman cross promo before the feedback, but when Chris added that stinger at the end, I damn near spit out my coffee. Perfect. Uh, yeah, he's talking about the the new Overlooked Dark Knight promo, which uh, has them taking stealing our Jim Starlin issues and ends with uh, the wonderful and very loud button of you screaming. <laughs> yeah, my Buford T. Justice. Yes. yes yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. Yeah. <laughs> I, that that wouldn't even catches me by surprise because it's like the the. The music like fades out and it goes dark, and I was like, "Did we record something else here?" And then you scream. I was like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people are going to think they're going back into their show, and then they hear, "I'm going to burn you, <laughs> barbecue your ass in molasses." Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, so we actually got a comment about our actual show. Uh, Alan W. Wright said, I don't understand why Neil Adams rejaws his classic Batman. The new stuff just sticks out like a sore thumb. Uh, yeah, Alan, it, it, it does. And like Ryan said, there there's worse examples than what we had in this one. But I I think I I was traumatized by that first Batman illustrated by Neil Adams book. So anytime I see it, I'm just like, nope, 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 no, no. I just I just like refuse to read it that way. I'm like, nope, I'm not reading that. Uh, so yeah, but yeah, it's, I, I don't get it. I, I, I would guess that, uh, when, you know, uh, DC came to Neil and said, Hey, you know, and I, this is just conjecture on my part, but I, I'm guessing when they came to him and they said, Hey, um, you know, we'd really like you to do some new covers for these, these books we're going to do, you know, you know, and he was like, well, I will, but you gotta let me touch the art up, you know? And they're like, okay. You know, and that's how that happened. I could be wrong, but yeah, I think I mean, as readers, as viewers, as fans, we see the finished project. We see the comic that that we paid for, and when you pay for it, when you're when you're experiencing that way, you see it as a complete thing. It is done. This is the product that you paid for. This is what you wanted. It's complete. And I think for the the talent involved, the creators, the writers, editors, colorists, pencilers, inkers, everybody involved in the production. A lot of times they might see the process, not the finished product. They see everything that went into it uh, over a certain amount of time. And for some people, that process never really ends. Um, and you do, I mean, I have listened to old podcasts that I have done before. And I have thought, you know what, I could re- I could go back to this thing. Like, this this isn't as good as I know it could be now with the tools and the traits and and the the headspace that I'm at now, I would cut that silence shorter. I would drop this song or this other beat like in faster or something like that. I mean, if I had the wherewithal, if I was being paid, I might go back and make those touch-ups and those corrections now. And I mean, some people just some people the the process it's it's never complete. Even though they have to submit it because they're on a deadline, if if it's a work of art for them, they never really feel satisfied by the product they're producing. They can always make those changes. For some people, they don't have that issue. For some, it's uh, it's a stronger compulsion than others. I used to joke that I thought um, there's a medical condition called body dysmorphic disorder where, uh, in extreme cases, people who don't think that their body is correct they they is a, a psychological 
defect where somebody begins to think that they need to do certain, they need to change their body in a certain way to make it look symmetrical, to make it look attractive, to make it look poor. And it could be something as much as tattoos, piercings, um, to actually having like surgery and, and changing their body surgically to do this. I used to joke that um, George Lucas had that for the Star Wars movies because <laughs> the number of like special editions and every time a new DVD set or a new Blu-ray or a new version came out, he would make more and more changes. It's like, dude, when are you going to stop? When are you going to let the movie be done? Some people, I don't know if they can ever do that. And I'm not saying that Neil Adams is like that, but maybe like if he goes back and looks at a book from the 70s, he doesn't think about how great it was and how this is a timeless class. Well, given Neil Adams' ego, yes, he probably does. But he also probably thinks, he's like, I, I'm... 50 years older now I'm smarter now I can change this I can I can make this art better and more accessible now that that a new audience would see it and that might just be a wrong read that people don't want that those changes even though the artist thinks that they're necessary or that they're an improvement um sometimes it's just hard to judge your own work so yeah I, I definitely think there's a lot to that I think it's it definitely feels like a lucasification Lucasification, I don't know, uh, of, 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 uh, something, you know, I mean, that's, that's, that's the, that's the go-to, you know, because I mean, everybody, everybody just wants the original version of Star Wars on a Blu-ray. I mean, yeah, sure. Clean it up, clean the picture up. Right. If you want to erase the matte lines and all that stuff, fine. Just don't, don't add anything. Don't change anything. You know, McClunky, no, you know, uh, <laughs> Uh, that type of stuff, you know, and it's, it's, it's the same thing here, but I, I get it too, because, you know, as I've felt the same way about podcasts. I've gone, but I won't even go back and listen to the very earliest Supermates. My God, they're horrible. But, uh, but, uh, and, and maybe some people, all your stuff's horrible, Chris, but, you know, but me personally, I feel like those are pretty bad. And, um, but, you know, even like in my day job as a graphic designer, I'll have something will come up and, you know, my boss will be like, hey, why don't you just go back to that one thing you did? you know, three or four years ago and we'll just change a few things that you can do that. And I'm like, I don't want to go back to that. Cause I look at that now and go like, I wouldn't make those decisions now. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go with that design and you know, this and that. So I can see, I can see that it just, I, I think it's a, it's a definitely a slippery slope, you know? It, it, yes. It would almost be better if he just redrew everything. You know, if he's like, this is this is me redrawing this story, then you could accept it as a completely different animal. It's like a it's 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 a remake. He's basically remaking the story he's redrawing. It's like a cover recreation, but like a whole story. Right. Uh, but the fact that it's like like random headshots of Batman or Bruce Wayne that he redraws, that's that's what throws it off, because then it's this incongruous like you've got this weird, you know, time flux of. You know, two thousands Neil Adams thrown in a nineteen seventy Neil Adams, Neil Adams, and it's just visually jarring, and just mm-hmm. it's never going to be visually pleasing to me. I don't think so. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Uh, all right, moving on. Edo Bosnar said, "Can't argue with the love for this story or its inclusion among the best and greatest Batman stories. It's a real one issue wonder from Messrs O'Neill and Adams." Otherwise, I also first read it in that little digest-sized black-and-white paperback, and it's the story I remember most from that book. I know I read it multiple times, while I can hardly remember any of the other stories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, we, we trimmed some of these comments, but a lot of people said they mentioned the same, what was it, the Temple paperback, or is that what it was called? Um, yeah, Tempo, yeah. Tempo, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah, that I was surprised because, um, and I actually have, I forgot I picked up the Justice League book 
from that series a while back. I forgot I had it. It's on my bookshelf. And I was like, oh, I've got the Justice League one. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, though it was it was kind of cool to see. Well, I wasn't alone. I you know that uh, people had that. Now the other there is another Neil Adams, Denny O'Neill story in there. It's the uh, the the Enemy Ace story that they did oh, with yeah. Batman. Yeah, which is in the greatest Batman stories ever told as well. So, uh, yeah, so that's uh, and then like I said, two two random Silver Age uh, new look Batman stories drawn by Sheldon Moldoff, which I mean Sheldon Moldoff was actually a very good artist, but it's just it's such a it's such a <laughs> and he yeah he's drawing in that pseudo Bob Kane style. He he he. He he'd broken. It wasn't quite the stiff, you know, fifties Bob Kane style he drew in. He was trying to be a little Infantino esque, but yeah, it's a big jarring jump from Neil Adams to, back to that. So yeah, yeah. it's kind of strange. Yeah. <laughs> Michael Bailey from the Fortunes of Bailey Two Network said, "Who was actually on this episode that we're talking about?" That was a fun episode, but I'm biased. One problem. That Michael Bailey guy, did he actually make it seem like Dunn and Ones weren't the norm back in the time this book was published? I mean, he kind of made up for it a few minutes later, but it seriously sounded like he was suggesting continued stories were as common in the 70s as they are now. Add to that him saying that the Two-Face origin recap was shorter than it would have been in the 70s as compared to now. Man, that guy has got to stop drinking so much before podcasts. <laughs> Yeah, what a jerk. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I think people got what you meant, Michael. Don't be so hard on yourself. It's fine. <laughs> I wasn't listening to him most of the episode, so I don't, I don't even remember. Yeah, yeah. That's the first you've, that's first you've heard of him, right? <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> Uh, David Ace Gutierrez said, I love me some good Two-Face. It can go a little far with the whole twinning double crime stuff, but he's always been my favorite Batman villain who isn't Mr. Freeze or Rachel Ghoul. Glad there's another Mr. Freeze fan. Uh, Chris can't help but get in the Kurt Swan plug. While I do often feel like his work can be super stiff, Chris is right. Swan's penciled work is something to see. I apologize for all the times I called him Kurt Yawn, except for the times I was right about that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this this led to the little uh, back and forth conversation in the comments about uh, well are you going to do a in defense of Kurt Swan podcast special uh, at some point I will it's it's I don't have any definitive plans it's just something that in one of these days I will do a Kurt Swan special and and Martin Gray has volunteered to join me on that in fact he even went out and bought the uh, Eddie Zeno uh, Kurt Swan biography. <laughs> Uh, so Martin's ready. I, he, he's he's chomping at the bit. To, it's like I, and I told him, "Well, Martin, I don't, I don't have. I've got a lot of other projects I got to do first. But yeah, at some point there will be a Kurt Swan in the in the defending Kurt Swan episode of FW Presents or something on this network with me and Martin Gray at least. Anyway, <laughs> hey listeners, that link to the Patreon is right there on our website. Throw some cash our way, and we, you can make Chris do that episode. <laughs> Kurt Yawn, no more. <laughs> uh, Liz Ann Oswald from her YouTube channel did confirm she did take a Joe Kubert correspondence course. She put up pictures of her diplomas and credentials on the Fire and Water Twitter page, and she never mentioned it until now because in all these years, the subject never came up. So, yeah, well, you know, unlike our pal Rob Kelly, you didn't bring that up every, you know, every, at every chance there, Liz. So, but but thanks for letting us know. That's, uh, that's cool. I mean, actually, I remember them, you know, I remember seeing the correspondence course uh, advertising the comics as well as the actual school. And I actually did think about it, but I was, I think by that point I'd seen that I was already in college taking art. So I was just like, 
I'm good. I'm just, I'll just, <laughs> I'll just take the classes I'm in right now. So <laughs> that's, that's being way too humble for your own good. Like that, that's something that, I mean, if you're dropping, like if we're talking about a like a, a comic book podcast, an entire network that have done thousands of shows on comics. And we have mentioned Kurt Joe Kubert a number of times. That doesn't, yeah, you can segue in there however you want. You can just say, yeah, most impressive episode. By the way, I did this thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Lizanne continued and said, wow, the Batmobile looked basic here. Just an expensive car with Batman silhouette on the hood. Wow, Bruce, don't put so much effort in the design there, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, but uh, I got to say, though, I like we said, I, I like that Batmobile because it is, it does fit this kind of back to basics approach, but it's not. So back to basics that he wouldn't have a Batmobile, you know. Uh, so I, I kind of like that one. And I don't know if I brought it up, but me and a me and a buddy, uh, we found a Plymouth uh, Superbird model kit from this. You know, it was a '70s Plymouth Superbird, mm. and uh, we uh, customized it into a Batmobile. We painted the the just the same kind of hood on the front of it, and put the bat symbols on the side. And it, of course, it already had the fins. That was a sweet looking '70s Batmobile, man. Let me tell you. And and his sister wrecked it and destroyed it, which oh, pissed me off. Yeah. yeah, she totally destroyed it, and it, she she half did it on purpose too. I think. Well, I think she completely did it on purpose, and then feigned ignorance, you know, that she didn't. But she was pissed one day and decided to his little sister decided to bust our model up, which pissed because it was over at his house. It made me mad in hell. But yeah, I gotta I gotta rebuild that thing one of these days. <laughs> this would have been like. All right, imagine like an alternate world where, you know, there was like a Batman cartoon in the 80s or something, and it wasn't based on the comic. It was based off a new like Hasbro like toy line of Batman or something like that. There would have been a Batmobile that was just a blue muscle car or something like that, and you push a button and the hood flips over to see the Batman, Batman face similar to that. It's like Bruce Wayne can be driving around in his own plain car, his blue car, but you push this button and the, the hood flips over to reveal like the, the Batman symbol and the fins pop out of the back things or something like eject on like a spring launched thing uh to try like it basically transforms like it's a transform or like a mask vehicle it turns oh, into yeah. the batmobile is what i'm thinking of yeah you 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 just got because you know there was the whole kenner connection between superpowers yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. and they did mask and superpowers and they and then dc published the comic what if they what if they put batman in the mask line and made that oh my god i mean that would just <laughs> been of course they did do kenner uh, that eventually became Hasbro when Hasbro brought him did do like, like several different, like Bruce Wayne conversion coupes that would, yep. you yep. put the Michael Keaton, Bruce Wayne in and pull back on it. And he would switch, he would like switch out for a Batman figure and yep. the car would look more Batmobile-y and things like that. So yeah, I could, I could totally see that. That would be cool. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the aforementioned Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl asked, Is a ship on display such an outlandish thing in the States? We have the Discovery in Dundee and the Cuddy Sark in, at Greenwich at Portsmouth. Of course Gotham has a pirate ship. I'm sure I saw a Boston Tea Party ship or something the other year when I was lucky enough to meet Ryan and Dr. Ange. Uh, yeah, that, that's a good point that we didn't mention. Uh, there, you, there are certainly sort of uh, historic... Uh, ships of that era that you can find along the eastern seaboard at certain places, um, either either as kind of museum or or tourist attraction designations. So, uh, yeah, it's it's not it's it is not crazy to think that Gotham City would have had like a ship of that vintage of that era parked at some or, or docked at some thing like that. Um, the fact that it was belonged to a a known pirate 
sure. It was it was Gotham. So yeah. I I, per, I think I'm the one that had a said I had a problem with it. It wasn't that I didn't believe that a ship like that would be docked. It's that they didn't mention that it was a tourist attraction. You know, it was just like yeah. it was almost like literally like you know like like somebody parked their car in the Walmart parking lot like. 30 years ago and it's still sitting there you know right. that type of thing you know it's it, it just it, it just that's what it it just seemed like that it's like literally oh yeah nobody's bothered to ever move it it's still sitting there 200 years later you know yeah. uh you know that, that, but yeah i mean uh, yeah obviously they could be they could be tourist attractions and things so yeah and martin said i realize this is sacrilege but i appreciate neil adams work more than i love it it's brilliantly naturalistic but lacks the sheer cartoony fun of a stylist like carmine infantino please don't hit me well, I'm never going to hit you for your uh, for your opinion on something like that. Um, two different flavors, two different styles. Um, the the Adams style is more fitting for the type of stories that we're talking about here. If you like the the more cartoony and more silver, early Bronze Age, new look sto- type of stories, then Carmen Infantino is right up your alley. Yeah. And I don't think you know they they fit the different eras that they that they drew Batman in, and I mean they're not they're just literally a year a year or two apart. Right. Uh, and it's only the real reason Carmine stopped drawing Batman on a regular basis is because he was booted upstairs to first art director and then publisher. Uh, but uh, you know the the image of I'm looking at it right now on a pu- on a puzzle in a can. The image of uh, Batman and Robin by Infantino and Murphy Anderson where they're on the rooftop and, and Robin's crouched down and Batman's pulling the cape around his face. That's like probably my single favorite image of Batman and Robin period. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm totally, you know, down with there's, there's aspects of, of what they did that I like just as well, or even more than, than what Neil Adams did with Batman or what anybody did with Batman. So yeah, I had that. I pulled that as a poster. It was a poster in the sixties originally, and they reprinted it. Uh, in the seventies or early eighties, it was packed in a box of fruity pebbles oh, and, nice. uh, I, I, I pulled it out of there and hung it on my wall. So yeah, it's, <laughs> it, it goes way back. And it's also the cover of Batman from the thirties to the seventies and yeah, yeah. yeah, Batman in the sixties and, and, and things like that. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it's a fantastic image. So yeah, no, we're not going to, and we would never hit you, Martin, especially in, and. And, uh, you know, everybody's got their own, you know, what they love and, and you f- what you find your joy in. And we might playfully pick on you about it, but we really don't. We, we really don't begrudge anybody. You know, as long as they ain't hurting nobody, we don't care what you like, basically. <laughs> Tim Pricewright wrote in to say, what a great story. No surprise that I still remember it. My favorite part is the Batmobile driving on remote to distract the clowns while Batman blindsides them. So crafty. Glad this issue was used to bring you two podcasts of two podcasters together to dialogue. Wait, I've got one more. Thanks, guys. Bye, B-I. I I mean bye, B-Y-E. I'm so sorry. That works better in the comments section, but every time he said two, he wrote two, he put the number two. And he dialogue, he's a D-I slash a log. So, yeah, he was being... Tim was being very cheeky that day. <laughs> I won't hit Martin Gray for his Carmine Infantino preference, but I will hit Tim for that. So. <laughs> hey, you can't hit. He's a priest. You can't hit a priest. <laughs> he's a he's a time priest. He's a time priest. <laughs> uh, I mean, he's a patron, so I guess whatever. Uh, oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> our last comment came from Gothos Mansion, which I should have mentioned. That's another one of my favorite uh, Neil Adams Batman covers. Is the the Gothos Mansion one? Yeah. Um, oh yeah, that's the re- redo the, of the Batman the re- and the yeah. Monk cover. Yeah, yeah, the redone Batman and the Monk. Yeah. 
Does anyone else find it odd that at a time when Batman went solo and comics were trying to move away from the TV show image, DC gave Robin more prominent logo placement? As a 70s kid, the two main 70s logos are my favorites, but I think the one on this cover looks tacky since it stretched to include the Robin information. Just my opinion. Like apparently everyone else, I first read the story in the 70s Tempo paperback. I got the set of all of the DC Tempo books for Christmas at 77 or 78. My first exposure to Two-Face, though, was on a Batman board game, so I was glad to read a Two-Face story and find out just exactly who he was. Uh, And then Gothos Mansion also said he would enjoy the Kurt Swan podcast from you, so... Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. Getting pressure. There you go. <laughs> uh, in terms of the, the logos, yeah. that Maybe that would be like a fun side project or something, because I, I, I don't think I've ever really looked at all of the Batman logos through the years and like ranked them or picked out my favorites. I mean, I, I can picture so many of them, but I don't think I've actually like ever cataloged them in my head and thought about which ones work and which ones don't for me. That might be fun. Maybe we should do... This, you know, what would be fun if we did that as a YouTube video. Mm, yeah. Yeah, and show and put, you know, put about like our top, like top ten, or you know, we like, and then we could do it, you know, as like a nightcast YouTube video where we talk about the logos or something. That'd be kind of fun because that's just such a visual thing, you yeah, know. Yeah, exactly. I like that. Yeah. That yeah. Be- yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah, and and I kind of like. I think that Batman and Robin one that that's on that uh, Batman two thirty four is the proper way to do what they're trying to do on these detective comics yeah, covers we're yeah. talking about in this one. I mean, because the ro- it's all contained. It's not, you know, it's not got stuff like hanging off everywhere. And it just, I mean, even if it does, it's not, it's not, it's just not as intrusive. It's not lopsided. It, oddly enough, that Robin, the Robin font, uh, the, the text that says Robin was used on the Mego packaging and they recently reused it. I may have mentioned this last time, but I actually got to my comic shop, reopened and and i got to you know made a there were there was only one other person in there so we we went inside the comic shop picked up our comics uh and we were being very careful uh because i'm not going a lot of other places basically the grocery store but you know it's comics but uh, i got the uh, robin robin 80th anniversary uh special uh the 70s edition with this uh great cover i can't think who did the cover but it's it's really fantastic and uh i don't have it in my hand right now but it's got that same robin logo mm-hmm. on the cover uh, so I thought that was cool that they that they went back to that and somebody somebody's paying attention at DC um, to the to the old comics at least in that regard. So uh, yeah, I but yeah, that's a great idea to talk about the different. There's especially Detective Comics had so many logos. I mean, there's some there's there's one coming up that right before they get to um, the one that we liked that was on the Marshall Rogers issues. There's this really strange giant Batman head that's over to the side of the logos that. I don't know who the hell drew that. I have never been able to figure out who drew that. But it's a really just giant Batman head that's on this that's on a couple of different detective covers in that era and then it's really it's it's really weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh that is going to wrap up this episode. Uh next month we're going back to the Engelhart Rogers run. Uh we're going to talk us uh, talk about some Deadshot and Penguin stories. Woo! Um, and then, yeah, I, I think 
I think we've got most of this year mapped out for the, what episodes we're doing, except until December. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm looking forward to those because obviously the Deadshot stories very famous for you know creating the version of the character that everybody knows, mm-hmm. uh, and you know the Penguin story is great, and it's got more more Robin by Englehart and Rogers, who did such a great job with him. So I'm, I really look forward to talking that. Nightcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Batman Nightcast. You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or email me at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at supermatespod or email me at supermatespodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information on how you can support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, visit patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. You can also support us by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Every review helps iTunes push this podcast to a wider audience. Batman Nightcast is also available on Spotify. This podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed here belong solely to us. All music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you for listening. You ready now?